Welcome to the Five Under One Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, we're discussing Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, the 1985 media critique book that has a very odd prescience to our times right now. And it's a book, I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time. It's a book that was particularly on my mind during the pandemic as theatrical was going down and people stuck in their homes had to figure out how fulfilling their entertainment was going to be. Uh, Joining me to discuss this episode, I had a friend of the podcast, Tara Fernandez, who works in advertising. She's a content partnerships director and works primarily in branding. And on top of her expertise, uh, being an old friend, she also has a good tendency to call bullshit on some pretentious theories uh, on my part. So it's a fun episode. Uh, first up, what I watched this week, uh, the final episode, uh, Scenes for a Marriage, the American remake of the Bergman miniseries aired. And I know when I first was telling some people I watched the first episode and was asking anyone else, I, as far as I know, I'm the only person who was watching it. Uh, I got a bunch of responses saying like, not wanting to watch a, um, a marriage d- a dis- disintegrate is probably not the thing I'm needing right now. Um, which I, I can understand. Um, everyone immediately went to a marriage story vibe, and it was it's a little more more than that, um, but less at the same time. I mean, it's Higai Levy, uh, who did The Affair, is most known for his work on In Treatment, but the more intriguing uh, person I was interested, a creative on there, was Amy Herzog, who wrote a few episodes. Uh, she's a playwright I like. I her play 4,000 Miles uh, in particular. Uh, also this week on TCM, they had Nightmare Alley, directed by uh, Edmund Golding, who directed Grand Hotel and Dark Victory, among others. But the reason I wanted to watch this is this movie is an odd choice to be remade by Guillermo del Toro in a movie that's going to be coming out in December, co-written by the great film critic Kim Morgan. And it was it was it there was always been this debate about remakes this argument that you should pick movies maybe people aren't that familiar with and maybe aren't uh, masterpieces either, which the original Nightmare Alley is pretty good, but the the fascinating thing was I, I spent most of the time watching it thinking what Del Toro was interested in. And you could see plot points as chess pieces that might be moved around the, the the coolest thing is like it's like watching a remake is also um um a very good class on how to cast where you can compare old actors to new actors and seeing who he filled in these roles you could clearly guess or go to imdb and check it out it, it just bodes the idea that a director's greatest tool is good casting but the coolest thing i saw this week is something we're probably going to talk about next week. Uh, the Bond movie, No Time to Die. Uh, saw it on opening night. And I got to be honest, it's the first... I think it's the first movie. This is the one that really makes me think movies are back. Um, even though it was a pre-pandemic production that's gotten pushed like five times, I really liked it. I not only really liked it, but it was a big movie with big emotions um we're going to talk about it a lot next week mostly but but on to this episode neil postman's amusing ourselves to death uh warning we talk about mentioned it multiple times in this episode not the most movie-centric episode uh especially picking a 1985 media and cultural theorist book it's a very slim volume but i have heard about this book from multiple sources but it most prominently was pushed by um Tristan Harris on his podcast, Your Undivided Attention. Most listeners would be familiar with him from the Social Dilemma documentary and the Facebook uh, whistleblower from last week, too, is probably arguably a direct response to their work. Amusing ourselves to death, the central theory behind it is that the dystopian world that we might be going towards isn't 1984 and George Orwell, where a government overtakes control and uh, uses force to control people. It's through being lulled by to passivity through entertainment. And I, when people stop talking about 
important movies during the pandemic, really when the, all the mental health issues everyone was dealing with and the claustrophobia and being really scared. As like, like with the scenes from a marriage argument, I get that didn't want to deal with stories that scared us more or reflected that. But I just really was thrown off in an almost existential way of how many of my friends were watching shitty Netflix just to pass the time. Like it was like entertainment was becoming a fucking pacifier to people. And Tara and, uh, and I, it's 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 also an odd book because it's one that has a great reputation and a in a really interesting thesis because I was also reading it for all the way through for the first time and its target is television which in terms of cultural relevance Tara was a good person to discuss why TV isn't the most powerful medium anymore and yet TV is the boogeyman of the book but at a certain point in the interview I asked Tara could we change out the internet for TV, and what does it do to the critiques? Neil Postman himself, this is probably his most prominent book, but as I mentioned at the beginning, Tara is prone to call uh, bullshit on uh, any pretentious doom and gloom arguments I might make. So, at the very least, it's an entertaining episode between old friends, so hope you enjoy. I think you're going to hate my take on this book. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. So when we first, when I first sent you the text about this, you, your first response was, uh, you thought I was being dismissive that like I was, I was pushing a book on you and you're like, I read. And that wasn't it at all. That was not it at all. It was, I'm giving someone a friend homework. Like I'm just making someone read a book. They would not be interested in reading. I got to tell you, this did feel like homework. <laughs> If it makes you feel any better, there's there's certain aspects of this book I thought or that that has been recommended to me that came out that I thought were brilliant, very the foresight level is 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 astounding. There, I mean, oh, I finished the last I finished the last three. two chapters about uh, an hour ago. Okay. No, home, the homework is fine. Wait, that makes me feel better because I finished it last night. <laughs> and it's a short, short book. It's like 160 pages. It's short, but there are parts of it that are so pedantic and dense and like so in like so into itself. Well, it's, I, it's the, the really big problem is it's so dated. I mean, and, it, and you 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 have to give its credit. It's a 36 year old book. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So parts of it are like obviously dated, and I was like, oh. Neil Postman would not have liked social media or Neil Postman would have had thoughts on Trump as a president. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which when you're reading this, it's like, that's kind of quaint that you felt this strongly about this then. Well, yeah. In the book. So the book's 36 years old and it's writing about a period of time or like is focused on a period of time that's like encapsulated in like the 30 years before it so it's kind of like interesting just from like a timeline chapter perspective like the capsule had thing like maybe yeah 30 years to like or not like 30 years to come up with this book but like 30 years to reflect on the impact of certain media right on society and culture and now we're looking at it you know almost 40 years later and some of it is still very relevant but like some of it i'm like oh i like the 700 club part like wasn't really that. <laughs> like the references in particular are kind of hard to hard to swallow but it's hard not for stuff like that to not be dated but like right. still i was like okay <laughs> i want to read this so um i also got started uh i started the the first edition and then I knew the the there's a 20th anniversary edition post. I forget when Postman died, but I want to say it's like the late 90s. Um, but and his son wrote the intro to the. Do you have it too? Oh, we have the same edition. I wanted to read this section from it. Sure. Um, or this or this passage, like your outlook on today could seriously be rocked by this plain spoken provocation about the world of 1985, a world yet to be infiltrated by the internet cell phones, PDAs, cable channels by the hundreds, DVDs, call waiting, caller ID, 
blogs, flat screens, HDTV, and iPods. Is it really plausible that a slim volume with its once urgent premonitions about the nuance and deep-seated perils of television could feel timely today, the age of computers? Is it plausible that this book about how TV is turning all public life, education, religion, politics, journalism, into entertainment, how the image is undermining other forms of communication, particularly the written word, and how our bottomless appetite for TV will make content so abundantly available, context be damned, that will be overwhelmed by information glut, until what is truly meaningful is lost and we no longer care about what we've lost as long as we're being amused. And the funniest thing about this is from 2006. So that itself is 15 years outdated. Yeah, like that, like PDA, like what? What did yeah. you I, I, yeah. My pager. Look, okay. W okay, the one big reason I wanted you specifically, there was, there's, yeah. there's a few big reasons, but the one was... um. I mentioned to you when we were talking about doing this, back when I was in LA around, it was, this talk would have been around 20, 2009, 2010. I was really... Oh, jeez. Yeah. No, I remember a talk you and I had, or one of these late night talks, where I was bemoaning about um, the future of theatrical film or movies in general. And I was talking about... And I was kind of this like pretentious scodling like film is the purest medium person in the conversation i was talking about the numbers of theatrical dying down since 1949 since um uh so, since the reverse integration of all that stuff and i was just like yeah it's, and it's been dying forever and it's still dying and the, and the studios can't do anything to like change it and i've done this spiel on other people they bought it you just looked at me kind of with the face you're looking at me right now <laughs> and you were just like that's not true that's not true at all. And I was like, no, what it is, the numbers have been going down. And you're like, okay, but that doesn't account for what happened in the 50s. TV took over, and then there's other mass mediums that have come in. More numbers have gone to that. People are still want to hear stories. They want to hear stories through different mediums. And I think I stood my ground in that argument, but I got to let you know, like all really persuasive arguments, it didn't persuade me at the moment. It's persuaded me in the years since. Wow. Yeah. I was going to say, because I think one of the reasons I really, and there and there's artistic value in both, you know, to me, but when you have a TV series, you know, if, if it's 8, 12, 14, whatever we're calling a series now or a mini movie or a whatever limited series, like that's like 14 hours to tell a story and you can get so deep and have such interesting moments from a storytelling perspective that sometimes can't be wrapped up in a two hour film. Right. Well, I mean, we, we just did a series on our, um, our TV goats and it built towards what peak TV was where in the age of peak TV to me seems very clearly uh, it's a big other reason I want to talk to you about this. Mm -hmm. The big line where it stops is, I mean, a big chunk of it's serialization where you stop doing episodic network stuff where it's uh, you create your characters. Um, you maybe have a beginning and a middle for your story, but you never have an end. And the idea is to keep the story going and going mm -hmm. uh, to keep your actors in production employed. And as long as you're still going for advertisers, the big, but beyond the serialization point, um, when HBO really started getting, getting relevant and completely abandoned commercials, that's mm -hmm. the real point where like peak TV took over and mm -hmm. where like, even though a lot of TV, I don't think was like really worked well to not be as influenced by advertisers. Like you really got to the point where like at best they were like saying like, Oh, we just can't, you know, do content that's going to go against. But I mean, this is, this speaks to what you know better, I think. Yeah. Right? So in like, totally hear you on like the prestige television and like that level that you know hbo and non-advertiser supported you know content like that tier but you're also seeing i mean and just to take a step back for a second and to reveal who i really am is i work at a media agency i like am like I am advertising or not am advertising. I mean, I have a slightly different job where I do branded content and integrations into content. So like 
I think it I'm revealed why I had you, Tara. I think I'm the boogeyman. No, um, but I think what's <laughs> the boogeyman speaks in defense. Yeah, the boogeyman of... speaks. Uh, listen, we can get into it. But, Let's get into it. But even if you look at like live broadcast television, like those numbers are going down. Okay. Significantly and have significantly. Which really hurts the uh, postman's argument for the book. Totally. So you're like, so like with the exception of sports, like those, those eyeballs are moving. They're moving to another place that's entertainment, that's streaming. Um, And now you're even seeing almost, you know, a huge battle there, which I'm sure this argument will be incredibly dated at some point, but (laughs) Uh, you know, we're looking at, look at all the streaming services that have popped up. Some are advertiser supported, some aren't, uh, you know, it, it does show in terms of commercialization of things like people are willing to pay for things to not have ads, but it's like, you pay for that. If you don't want to pay for that, then you're getting some ads. Like I, myself, for, I pay for the premium Hulu yeah um package because i don't want to watch commercials and i'm the one putting the commercials there (laughs) i've gone back and forth between it and it's a a distinct difference um we were talking neil postman's amusing ourselves to death and i first heard about this through um uh, tristan harris who runs the center for humane technology and he did um he was instrumental in that documentary the social dilemma and he's been pushing this book a lot and i don't think he really cares about the tv argument or he probably cares about maybe one fifth of the argument behind this book. But the real interesting point mm-hmm. I think he's made is that, and the thing that I think the book survives on and really has something to tell us about right now is whenever we fear dystopian future, we always talk in terms of 1984. Mm-hmm. And his main point is that we didn't end up in George Orwell's future. We ended up in Aldous Huxley's future with Brave New World where and, it re- and the reason I really want to do this this podcast right now is that during the pandemic, I really distinctly felt that in the year where theatrical wasn't going to be good playing, which had a good reason for not playing, mm-hmm. being a factor, whenever I talk to my friends about what they're watching, it wasn't this time to go back to the great books. It wasn't this time to go back to even great <laughs> movies or anything like that. Yeah. It was... We, you'd work from home. At the end of the day, you'd find a even more so than normal, even more than like you're like, I, I hate my job. I just need to veg at the end of the day. Everything was a TV show that you just wanted to, to like find a way to like fall asleep towards or yeah. get yourself towards sleep. Um, I want to read this opening passage from Neil Postman's uh, foreword too. Uh, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared that those who would deprive us of information. Uh, Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would be, become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the central fugal bumble puppy. I, that, fra- that phrasing, that's interesting. That's, but maybe yeah. that's not. Um, as Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. (laughs) Is this part of the pretentious stuff you hated? But I do like Bumble Puppy. Okay, so the part that I was hard on (laughs) you was the one part you liked. I think I just like that word. And, and, and part of this goes back to our, the, the conversation from back from 2000, all the way back in 2009, where mm-hmm. basically the reason I was asserting that I want theatrical, theatrical movies to be prime, have primacy is that's my medium. That's what mm-hmm. I work in. That's what I love. Mm-hmm. So that's my, that's my team. That's why I was pushing this more than anything else. But there's no good reason why. Because the other really cool thing about this book, I think, is that it really does try to contextualize the pathway with which 
civilization built off information going from the oral tradition going to uh the written word to the printed press mm -hmm. to tv and i mean you're, you're capturing 2000 millennia of progress there which now is like accelerating super fast and so yes he hasn't gotten to the internet yet because and it, at the same time it only happened a few years later too so yeah i just i just feel like he's really mean to television and it's I, and again it's of its time like but i i there's parts of the like when he goes really deep into like the educational aspects which is like later in the book and he talks about the voyage of mimi which he said like it was something we would all know uh yeah no that that's where like he lost me a little bit to some extent i was like there's so much and not to sound precious about it but there is a, a lot that we've learned from television and i think as a device and it doesn't even have to be like television television it can be like visual serialized you know information i was i was thinking ambivalently about the fact how much chromebooks are in every every school right now totally but I mean, obviously, the educators think there's some benefit to it. The The other big thing was I was thinking about the kids that he was worried about um, would definitely have been me. I mean, I'm a little older than you, but not much. So like you too, but mainly like I was raised on TV. Same. <laughs> like same, but I, I don't think it can really be ignored that there are complicated thoughts and like different types of lifestyles that have been shown on television that have helped society progress. That's kind of a, a general statement, but like there, there's not like, I feel like he's really worried about like critical thinking. Yeah, no, definitely. Actually, and again, not to totally change subjects because we can go back to it, but there's a critical thinking aspect that's a little bit lost here that I feel like he he's pointing out He's pointing this out in 1985, but I, I feel like there's an awareness that we have. Like, I know I'm being advertised to. I know, like, like I, I'm trying to... I, I well, there's this like, point late in the book, he says, where, like, when he talks about TV that would actually, like, break through and educate people, he talks about parodies, and he says it has to be, like, Saturday Night Live or Monty Python, stuff mm -hmm. that makes fun of TV. And part of me is, like, uh, that's SNL's legacy, making fun of TV and making people aware of the artifice of TV and advertising to a certain advertising mm -hmm. to a certain extent. But yeah, I mean that's also like the power of comedy and that that's good TV too. And good TV, yeah. I mean, well, let's... <laughs> yes, okay. but I yeah, I don't know. But I say that, but then I'm also like, they're definitely the I'm gonna do my own research. People that don't do real research, like. I don't know. I just feel like there is like a level of society that like isn't just passively watching TV or or I don't know. There's there's a thought in there somewhere. It just hasn't it hasn't like material fully materialized yet. <laughs> there there's a lot of um I mean there's a certain point where he seems to presuppose I mean, he keeps saying that, like, there's good TV, but all good TV is still junk in a triviality. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, he would have he loved the Kardashian. <laughs> we live in an age where, from, like, a, at least a movie versus TV standpoint, and I've been saying this forever, TVs are have been significantly better than movies for a long time. Now, versus the printed word? I don't know. That's a different question, but... That question also goes into the primacy of which medium actually gets to more eyeballs and actually affects more people in a deep way. And so, yes, if you want to say that TVs has a superficial is typically a superficial generates a superficial reaction out of people, sure. But there's been deathful TV that has. Yeah, I didn't even mean to turn this into like defending TV just because like it's it's almost irrelevant. Like the it, this book would would play so much better if you just cut and paste internet for TV. For you know TV, I mean? yeah, actually, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yes and no. Um, but I don't know. Books haven't gone away. 
I'm not saying they've gone away. I'm and 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 uh, well, also I wanted to give you a chance. Did you actually read your uh, David Foster Wallace essay that you mentioned oh, to me? No, I didn't. Okay, uh, good because I because I tried and I like David Foster Wallace. Yeah, my my again because my friend let me borrow this book. He's like, oh, you might also like this, and I was like, okay. Uh, no, it's still buried in my room somewhere. I got to a certain point where I was like, all right, I'm just going to skip around, see if I can find for uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death is mentioned. And it was not, as far as I could tell. Um, <laughs> or I missed it because I was so... Again, a more prepared person would have done that. I feel like I should have, but then I'm like, eh, that's not really authentic to who I am. You read this book, Tara. You read this book. Like, I do. You, you're you, like, I pushed this book onto people before, and then I barely finished it. I feel really smart. I mean, I had to look up how to say epistemology. You, I'm so glad you brought up the word epistemology. Epistemology is like my um, trigger word for pretentiousness. It and semiotics are the ones where I'm like, oh no, someone's writing about this in depth. I'm not going to pay, like this This person does not really seem interested in communicating anything to me outside of an academic setting. Like when I tell you, I had to look up, look up one to make sure I really was sure on the definition. And then two- Actually, if I'm honest, I actually had to look it up again too to make sure. And then I had to look up, how do you say that? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, also, uh, I majored in television and like there's a theory element to like the degree that I have. And like this, I was like, how did I not read this book as part of my major? Or maybe I was supposed to read it and I just did it. <laughs> what kind of things came up from from college that you remembered while reading the book? Uh, no, just the just the thought of like television's impact on culture. Um, I think there's there's definitely like an optimistic way to look at it and then uh and then a this way to look at it <laughs> right um but no it just remind it just reminded me of like reading a book in college about because like there's all these other theories about television and about gatekeepers and about when you look at news and sharing information um and you know Again, I was, <laughs> there's like the cone of silence and like there's people who feel a different way, but then are too afraid to say anything because that's not what's being projected back at them. There, hmm. There's like, there's like all these like more theoretical or not even theor. Well, yeah, I guess theoretical, but there's all these like terms for communication mm -hmm. that I half remember and doesn't really impact me on a day-to-day -day basis. But this book just reminded me of all those, like, I didn't read this <laughs> <laughs> or, or I read this once, or I should know more about this, but I don't. <laughs> well, let, let's just for the sake of, of this conversation, let, yeah. let's go ahead and follow through with what I was saying a second ago, where let's sure. take away TV from this. Cause like even his examples of TV, like they were the popular stuff of the day that haven't really survived. Like, at least they, mm -hmm. I mean, they have, but we know about them as cultural uh, milestones, but yeah. We, there's not a lot of people rewatching. Like I think the closest he talks about uh, Hill Street Blues and Saint Elsewhere, like those are the ones I think. Okay, people are still watching that, but like and he mentions Cheers, everyone still watches Cheers. Like, but a lot of these are just. There's a lot of straw men throughout this whole thing. So let's replace TV with internet. Okay, done. How does this? How does that change how you feel about the book? Mm, I don't know if it really changes it. I'd be curious to know his thoughts on social media and, you know, he was worried about things being colored one way or the other. And that's like, in a lot of ways, it's, it's more fragmented now of like where people are getting information and right. what they're choosing, you know, and what, you know, the algorithm, like, you know, that like what yeah. you're selecting informs and changes the information being spit out back to you. So yeah, there's definitely something like I don't it changes it, but it, it doesn't necessarily make it better or worse. But I don't know. Do you think if you replace television with the Internet, like how does how does that make you feel about it? The specifics, not necessarily, but everything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, well, I think there's this hoity toity academic view. There's still a lot of uh, uh, there's a there's an like, I hate to use this term just because I sound like a uh, 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 in uh, like a 
angry Midwesterner, but it just <laughs> there, there is a there is a tone of superiority about academic tone of superiority about um, what TV does to us, which and it's weird. It's it's also that thing of where like I'm on your side, dude, or the internet is, is like I'm on your side, but you sometimes you make this sound like um, well, actually, you know what? What would happen was I would always get through a passage. And I'd be like, I'd read like the beginning of it and I'd be like, I'd start to roll my eyes and then I get a little further in. And I'm like, well, he's not necessarily being that critical of it. And he's making some really good points. Like I haven't like even gone to any of my notes on some of this stuff. Like, I mean, the, the trick is that he thinks of everything as um, junk, which yeah, what he's describing is junk, but like, yeah. And so therefore when he's describing the effect it has, Okay, he's not inaccurate on some of that stuff, but um, I mean, you can't measure society by its trivialities. Uh, is one of his quotes from that. Uh, um, I just found it. If you start to like ignore a lot of the harshness of the criticism, there's insights in here about how a medium changes or and how what the next medium's going to do. Like he talks about, he he has this thing called the rear view mirror thinking, where a medium is an extension or amplification of the older one. And I started thinking about this and like. If you think of the internet as being right now 40 years old, which, let's, let's, okay, the internet was probably invented in the late 60s and stayed in academia, but when the government started putting money into the internet, it really is like early 1980s, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think of the internet as 40 years old, and then you think of television as coming from the late, uh, the early early 20s or like, was it 1917 around World War One era? Uh, I forget when. Uh, I was going to say, I feel like it was invented in the 20 Barnesworth yeah. and Sakharov or whatever those two guys fighting. Yeah. Um, so if you say 40 years into the internet's a progression and you ignore the fact that like how much technology grows and, and like, and changes society quickly, like we're only to the 1960s point for TV with the internet. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Where advertising significantly changed in the fifties. Um, I mean, and he has some really interesting points on what changed with advertising where he talks about how, um, you had to like make sure in a TV ad that you're factually stating what a product does. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, in the same time, he's, he's before like the branding revolution where everyone, or he's in the very beginning of the branding revolution where people are still like arguing about don't show your product on TV or show your product on TV or like, do we make you make a brand that everyone wants to be our friend, you know, where, which yeah. seemed to take over more significantly after this point, which was way more effective. Yeah. The, his discussion on advertising also obviously piqued my interest, but it's, and I think it also speaks larger to people's relationship with their television and the, and the information coming out of it to them. And like, obviously you know, advertising has an agenda and that's also what pays for the other things that are on TV. Well, one of my favorite critique and interesting things everyone likes to talk about with the internet and all the problems with everything, capitalism, what Facebook, mm -hmm. social networks, all this stuff is our incentives. Mm -hmm. Well, advertising is the mother of all incentives. Like that's the thing that makes money just because it's the thing that makes us want to spend more money on something. And it's the, it's the salary. No, <laughs> well, it's the, um, it's the thing that stirs up the economy. It is. And there's a whole nother conversation about if advertising works or not. And, you know, digital advertising and all that jazz. But what is that conversation? Like where people are trying to advertise to you is where there are eyeballs. So, you know, there's a whole, you know, there's social media you're advertised to on. You don't pay for, you don't pay to have Instagram on your phone. But then when you're using Instagram, there's ads and then there's trans. Is this like the attention economy? A little bit. To actually use a Tristan Harris face? Oh, yeah. That's what that's called. There's that. There's, you know, TV still works to summit to, you know, great success. How does how do, how does it still work? Sports is what you mentioned earlier. Sports, no. Uh, people watch TV. It's you know they, or you know there are streaming platforms where, and you know and uh, network you know uh, the, the, the like recordings of, like the advertising is still there. Yes, you can fast forward it. Then there's what I do is actually put 
uh, messaging in the programming that's unskippable. So one day I will take over the world. (laughs) (laughs) Through through my giveaways on television shows and... (laughs) And that'll be the only advertising that exists. You, you, you are, uh, you are what is uh, has spurned forth from the printing press all the way to Terra. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're gonna put the ads in the content. Well, uh, the so people on uh, uh, that have been on um, uh, Harris's uh, Tristan Harris's podcast, your undivided attention, most notably Jaron Lanier, talks a lot about. Um, taking YouTube away from an advertising model just because like YouTube's algorithm, they always talk about is so good that the phrase mm-hmm. is you're always just like two videos away from flat earth Nazi propaganda because <laughs> like it incentivizes like the conspiratorial thinking or just negativity. Oh, and like, yeah. and it's, it's weird. And at the same time we've TikTok in particular is like, we just put up an episode on TikTok. Um, TikTok in particular just is like so addictive. Like I can't, I yeah. go into it. If I ever, I, I can't do TikTok because if I do, I go down a hole and YouTube is the one I more commonly go down. But it's always like when I'm feeling lethargic, I put on YouTube and their suggestions are so spot on. Although yeah. they seem to really think I'm really into a nineties, uh, Michael Jordan basketball in particular, but, but at the same time I watch it. I keep watching it. My algorithm always gets messed up because of like stuff I'm doing for work. So oh. like, for example, like, my YouTube algorithm really thinks I like love Tom Hiddleston and I'm like, I like, I like him, but like, I don't need to see all of his press junket videos. <laughs> like, I'm like, why are these here? It's been suggested. If you want to see what kind of bubble you're in, switch accounts with a friend or just look at someone else's YouTube account. I know oh, yeah. Google has the thing where like for, I have millions of Gmail addresses for myriad of reasons. So like <laughs> I'll switch my YouTube for that. And it yeah. tells me different stuff for that. gonna say the one so when I like actually started taking I was like I should take notes I should like prepare but there was one that I wrote down that came up that I thought was a little prescient well maybe not I don't know but just that the conversation about disinformation I don't know if you had that in what it what particular stood out to you about it just like even I it just it what stood out to it what stood out to me about it was i felt like that was a buzzword that we almost kind of grew immune to um with like the- recently grew immune to or like immune even then um i feel like recently like it's been a larger conversation just with the idea of fake news and like that being you know a term that's thrown around in you know, seeing, seeing the media differentiating between misinformation and disinformation. Yeah. Yeah. Like just seeing, you know, the media's impact on certain things of, of recent. Um, I hate to say it. I don't remember what he said. In, about... I know I have to find, I'd have to find it. I didn't, I did since I don't own this book, I didn't highlight in it. Uh, you're a highlighter. I, 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 I can't do it. Oh, I can't highlight. Well, there, there's, there's definitely his quaintness when he's talking about Reagan, which yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, like it, reading it in the era of Trump, it's just he's not wrong. I don't want to dismiss it. Like, the, the, like it, it, it belies a, the the bigger issue I was thinking of is that the problem is the person or the popularity of it. It's more where we're at with our current politics, where the personality and the popularity contest takes over the policies of, of a democracy. You're voting for a person you want to have a beer with versus the person mm-hmm. who can use actual data to get shit done. Like mm-hmm. actual, the actual information on the ground. And then you, you get stuck in these uh, manufactured consent ideology, ideology bubbles that are based on our own narratives and assumptions that are inherently limited. And, but at the same time, and it turns into a TV commercial who can convince you that they're like a cooler person and they're not a dick, which goes back Mm -hmm. to this like idea that like old political idea that someone's trying to pull a fast one on you, but but all of politics is trying to pull a fast one on you right now. All it is is a game to stay, keep, stay in power and keep, keep getting reelected. 
you know, as someone who's listened to the Hamilton soundtrack a lot, I... You're bringing up Hamilton, okay. <laughs> oh. I feel, again, they didn't even have TV. <laughs> Sorry, did you want bad jokes in this? Cause no, 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 that's that. fine. That works. I was, the that. one thing I did read in the David Foster Wallace essay is, I can't remember who, it was like the toss, or I forget who, the, he, he points out that Americans have been through like interested in sensationalism and superficiality. He, like he wrote an essay in the early 1800s about it. Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's something that's his argument was that it's baked into why uh, American capitalism has worked as well as it has to make America as wealthy as it has been. Um, or at least I don't know if actually that really wasn't David Foster Wallace was saying, he was just saying it was baked into America, but also question for you. Okay. Is it disrespectful to Neil Postman to make this podcast entertaining on any level? Or do you or, want it to be wait, wait, Tara, do you want this to be educational? Because if it's gonna be educational, then it can't be entertaining. <laughs> or did I miss the point of this book? <laughs> uh at one point he mentions the Lincoln Douglas debates. And he talks oh, about yep. is there are not audience of Americans who can endure seven hours of talk or five hours or three hours of talk. And I immediately thought of podcasts. This goes to this idea that um, as much as media maybe is, he brings up Marshall McLuhan a lot. And Marshall McLuhan talked a lot about the differences between hot mediums and cool mediums. And the cool mediums being the ones that you can um, let passively take, take you over. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason I've been obsessed with podcasts lately is because I feel like it's a hybrid between the two. It's a great mix between the two because it's a, it is the three, five, seven hour talk that I can Mm -hmm. do something else while I'm doing it, ignore for large parts of it, and then suddenly come out with a profundity and nuance that I need that is not being given to me in TV or the internet should be given to me, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. Okay. That, that, that goes into, that goes into a little more to why I think the internet's a good, uh, interchangeable boogeyman for the for tv in this because there's um there's a book i like that i actually was reading when we would have been talking in 2009 by uh, nicholas carr called the shallows that goes really into why the internet really takes long form concentration and really screws with it and it talks about mm-hmm. basic things of like how journalism switched from printed paper to the internet and it talks about when you read say a new york times article and you read it on a page you got a street stream of of of, of text but when you look at it on the internet, mm-hmm. it's broken up by constant ads and the page changes constantly and it's constantly moving to distract you from the actual concept, what the actual text is. So like an ad is constantly trying to get you away from concentrating on it. Like that's one basic way the internet is hard to do long form concentration on. But what about like the endless scroll? What about it? I mean, I, I, are you saying like text blocks in the way like we sometimes so casually ignore text blocks or, or long reads? Mm. or a book to be fair a book that is not engaging us that is just like <laughs> you got a thousand page doorstop that you're never going to read i mean yeah or a I, 160 page book that's a chore to read. this yes i feel like i could just talk about an hour about the struggle of reading this book no um <laughs> i'm so glad you read this tara thank you uh, thank you that is a real good sign of friendship that you read yeah this. i was like oh i'll read yes this. you i am your friend barely i read this <laughs> friend barely i will read this book no i just i wasn't expecting this book to be so pedantic and i said that word before but like I just, I just was like, wow, here we are. We're doing this. Did you get all in like, what beneficial did you get out of the book? Did you see anything differently? Or did you say like, there's like beyond the disinformation stuff. Did you see some of the stuff, anything that was like, well, he nailed something. Um, yeah. When he started talking or when he brings up the politics of it all i was like well you're not wrong <laughs> fair enough like i'm like i'm like like it like as i was reading it i was like oh man he would have loved <laughs> like, i was like man 2016 would have <laughs> really well, what do you think he would have thought of uh, george w bush too um i don't know like 
similarly, the nepotism there, I think, would have played is like, I feel like the bigger headline, but hmm. That's a good question. I'll have to think about that. Right That's now. why it's it's it goes to this the, the point I was making earlier about politicians increasingly being, you know, the the, the the headline thing that everyone who thought Reagan was ghastly as a concept for a politician was an actor to quote Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like and and it came it really pushed this idea that politicians are selling you something and to convince you to do something they they're selling something that might not have substance to it. And increasingly, you're you're voting for personalities and not policy. Which I mean, I say increasingly, but it really is more like we're just finding out we've always been voting for that in the since the beginning of our democracy. I was gonna say that's it's not it, outside the founding fathers and uh, how much we and Hamilton might have uh, made them legends, like in the Federalist Papers. Ugh, maybe maybe not. One point I wanted to make that I thought was just it's in the very last pages. Oh. He just stumbled on this, but talking about um, data, you know, data being more uh, profitable in the last two, three years than oil and how the social media companies, that's the main way they're making money. It's funny because he says this after first starting talking about how he thinks that uh, computers are an overrated technology. But then he says, um, a central thesis of computer technology with the principal difficulty we have in solving problems stems from insufficient data will go unexamined until years from now, when it will be noticed that the massive collection of speed of light retrieval of data have been of great value to large scale organizations, but have solved very little of importance to most people and have created at least as many problems for them as they might have solved. Again, he just, st- like, every few pages when you might get frustrated through, like, yeah, like, okay, you really seem to have a problem against Sesame Street. Why What? What is Sesame Street yeah. the devil? <laughs> then you turn around and he has a passage like that. Yeah, like, that's incredibly fascinating. But then it's hard not to get distracted when you're like, oh, no, Sesame Street's entertaining. The Voyage of the Mimi, like, what? <laughs> I don't remember anything about Voyage of the Mimi at all. Like at all? Wait, really? No. I feel like he brought it up. No, I no, also... no, no. I remember him bringing it up. Oh, I'm yeah. saying personally, I don't remember. Oh no, you shouldn't, because we're not sixty. <laughs> no, but like again, he said it like it was something we all knew, and I'm like, well, Sesame Street and SNL are the two references that have held up, which in a way is pretty impressive. Well, Monty Python. Oh, and my Monty Python's era. Yeah. Come on. Oh, page one hundred seven. That's where you said disinformation and it's in italics this movie uh, you on the the copy you have one of the people quoted on the back is matt Groening, where like yeah. that's one of the only like i'm trying to figure out what the influence of this book has really been outside of all uh, i can say about neil postman's brilliant amusing ourselves to death is guilty as charged <laughs> way to read it in your nerdlinger voice tara oh i did do a voice <laughs> I specifically I thought of around this time would have been when broadcast news came out. And it just feels like a lot of the TV commentary doesn't go beyond broadcast news to me. Like broadcast yeah. news said, said so much all you need to say. And a lot of media commentary has not gone past broadcast news. Which is weird because I don't feel like that's where a majority of people get their news anymore. Anymore, especially. Oh, no, God, no. Yeah. No, not now. Um so much of the, the the complaint about the badness of TV goes into a uh, question I want to have to you. Is this like a lack of, is this the style versus substance argument where he's just saying mm-hmm. there's not enough substance on that that's coming on TV? Because then mm-hmm. you get into this, there's always been this inherent question of like, uh, um, Marshall McLuhan really pushed this a lot where TVs inherently just cannot give you information or the, there's not a way of TV that can like, like the information that's retained. And maybe there's some data studies that back it up, but, is that true? Like, is that, or is that like, just because if you're only shown dumb TV for a long time or advertising model TV, like, isn't that like, it's hard to get substance off that. I don't, or if, I you're, don't, if you're, if you're saying like, Oh, what we're talking about a second ago, like, Oh, new, a 30 minute news program that the government pushes or says to have, have every day, every day at five 30. If that doesn't give everyone a, a complete civics lesson every day, is it worthwhile or is it something we should explore and try different changes in the medium to itself? Wow, you said a you said a couple of big you had a couple of big swings there. First, <sighs> sorry, Tara. 
Well, I was going to say for the first part of that, again, and I say this as a professional hazard, uh, you know, there are people who study why and what we're watching and how it makes you feel. And if, you know, if you're watching a, you know, if you're watching a program and these commercials came on, did you remember it? What's your recall rate of it? How do you feel about those brands? Like, right. and, and again, I'm just talking about the advertising piece of it. There's, because that's the part that I know and have directly seen. And also how they, they, they get the, the studies from on. They... Yeah. But I was going to say, they also do that for their actual, you know, networks also do that for their actual content. Uh, you know, and I, and again, when you talk about data collection, like Netflix isn't, you know, doing the remake of whatever show because, you know, for their health, they're doing it because they're like, oh, this data we've all collected about what everyone's watching puts that back out. So anyways, but to go back to the actual point of what you were saying. No, 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 no. That was actually really interesting. Because because you, it's funny because like people like to make the joke that like, why does Netflix not recommend, if they're so good at data, why don't they recommend everything perfect for me? But at the same time, then they put out some anonymous uh, piece that's in their top 10 for like two weeks and you find out later, oh yeah, it had 80 million views. Totally. And they, and they also don't really share those numbers. Right. But they have them. <laughs> um, and they act on them. And they act on them. But like those things are measured. Like we're always into like looking at like awareness and sentiment and recall and like did any, you know, people we we paid all this money for these ads to be in this spot did anyone remember our brand or like what did they take away from it so like there is a science piece to that i I didn't doubt there was a science piece or even that it's like an ongoing scientific sense of discovery how to get more effective with it too especially once data comes into play totally But the second, what was the second thing you said? Style versus substance was the most. Oh, thing style versus I, substance. I was going through this where, like, are you are like, is is the argument that just like, because clearly TV is giving us the the uh, uh, key information we know to the day, but is it contextualizing it in a way that uh, relates to our lives? Does it make us feel that we have control over our lives? Does it make us feel that we're involved in a democracy? Ooh. You know, this is a movie podcast, Tara. Is it technically? Technically, it's oh to be. my gosh, yeah. I had no idea. No, this all started because I was just like a few people gave me some like boring ass recommendations on Netflix, and I was like, are, and there are people who are like would have watched movies normally during the pandemic. Um, should we talk about movies that are about TV? <sighs> we already talked about broadcast news. So, um, should we... <laughs> <laughs> um. He's also really mean about news anchors being pretty. And you don't think that goes to my broadcast news critique? Why do totally? You, you think that's um, not legit, or do you think? Do you like? I mean, we like. I guess, like, I'm like, I don't have a problem. With it. It's not that I have a problem with <laughs> it. You just you see, like the like you you constantly look at like why was the uh, nightly news so influential for so long. Mm-hmm. And is it just the three networks versus the five thousand networks? Like I, I feel like a conversation about like the news and the gatekeepers and who's, uh, you know, what information is available to whom at what time. Like it's all incredibly important, but it also feels like is it a different conversation? I think it might be because. But it's all, I mean, it is connected, but he's like, I feel like he's saying, why aren't people reading long newspaper articles about subjects that pertain to them or sitting through three hour long conversations like they used to, and they're relying on a news program that has 30 minutes to cover a bunch of high level stories that are important to you summarize them snip things out and try to tell people what's important the important parts of a you know of a long speech 
with highlights and people are only looking at the highlights of something. Well, if we're still replacing the internet with TV, which we haven't for a while, I think the issue is that um, it's more apropos for right now. People will read an article, especially, which isn't something that he discussed, but it's a big problem right now where you read something inside your own bubble and then you think you're informed on the subject that does not make you persuasive on it at all, but also gives you the illusion that you've done your civic duty. Like the changeover. I, I think it's the, it's people are reading the headlines and thinking they've read the article. Actually. Yes. Okay. Wait, that's way more insightful, Tara. Yeah, totally. It really, I mean, but no, no, actually, actually, no. When you actually do sit down and read an article, Mm-hmm. you feel like you put that effort into it so there you feel like oh i'm, I'm in fl- i I've, i have more knowledge of this than the average person who just like looked at uh, their social media feed and just read a headline mm-hmm. and especially with like the way so much uh um the social media is incentivized like to in to keep your bubble a bubble you you think you're knowledgeable about a subject that you may really only have like so like kind of a limited view on but i mean and and the other big the big factor for me in the last two years being in the midwest is like seeing like this the state that turns red the fastest on every uh, presidential election (laughs) it's just like how persuasive are you really being like are are you really talking to someone else are you just arguing at them are you reinforcing what like uh you want to believe versus like finding common ground like and in common ground can also doesn't mean giving up what you like what's important to you is just like can you be persuasive anymore i mean that's a that's a that's not in this book that's not the that's not for a movie podcast to discuss that's not in a movie podcast but it's not not a good point do you like that double negative and i also i and this is literally something i watched last night like when you watch like a daily show correspondent at an anti-mask rally and he's and they're like the government can't tell me what to do with my body and then on the heels of you know texas texas yeah i was gonna i was like i was like i don't i was like do we need to talk about abortion on this podcast no but it's like we don't even need to go into it just texas just say yeah just texas like it's the duality of both of those thoughts existing in one person and not seeing that kind of but i again i think that's like that's a a a parody news show framing it in a funny way that shows like a blatant contradiction to someone who that argument like is not for an abortion standpoint is not going to change any person i know that considers themselves against abortion around here they're not they're not going to find that hypocrisy changing their mind totally so it's yeah i don't know again it's like you're you feel a certain way about things and then you gravitate towards the content that speaks to you or that you find entertaining and even like where you're getting your information from like you're gonna you you know what really gets me about the book i think oh yeah what really what really what really no no you mentioned the word there that i think is the key word entertaining versus fulfilling what is like and it's an issue I'm constantly coming back to because, like, I don't want, like, depending on how you frame it, some people with movies like to say vegetables versus candy or uh, movies. Mm-hmm. And they always want to, or they they say in broader terms, um, art house film versus a uh, popcorn film. Or, uh, I, I again, I think those are framings that, like, don't find the common ground between them. Like, I, you know what, 2001 is my sweet spot for a movie I want to make. And 2001 was a giant hit. And to be fair, there's probably a good reason it made money because a bunch of people got stoned to watch it. But <laughs> if that's if that's the thing that needs to happen and they have a profound experience, that's a profound experience. Like, don't, like, big commercial cinema can still be smart and talk to you in oh. a way that could steer core is what I'm saying. And, like... Absolutely. I feel like his problem here is he's talking about we seem to settle on entertainment too much. And that's what bugged me about the pandemic and when my friends were recommending shitty Netflix stuff to me. (laughs) But like, I think, again, people are more complex than that. Like, I can like to listen to a five hour history podcast about the Romans and listen to a celebrity recap about Housewives. They're not not mutually exclusive and they don't uh, invalidate the other they don't like is it is it you know if i was doing like a psychographic on myself is it a little weird that i like 
to you know, listen to history podcasts and very popular pop culture things and murder podcasts. Like it's like all of those things, all of those interests exist in the same thing. Like a lot of what I consume, it, it's it's a little bit of everything. You know, there's there's a there's a passage at the beginning of the book where he like he do, he doesn't sound condescending where he he celebrates the trivialities of what he calls. He uses the term triviality and he does use the word junk, but he's trying to say like there's clearly pleasure in it. And there's mm-hmm. clearly something that the diversion or, I mean, like, I, I I feel like the central argument is like diversion can't be the main thing. And I mean, that, that's what you're saying too, isn't it? You could do both. You can do it all as my, <laughs> you can have it all, Shane. I, I thought you were literally about to do a, a, a cigarette ad on me from the early 70s. I would love to. Okay. There is one part where he like gets really critical on the machinations of TV that like they don't hold more than 3.5 seconds uh-huh. on a particular yeah. on a particular and I that, I don't know why that was really funny to me like I was like I was like okay like I was like oh now we're making TV <laughs> now you're now you're mad about attention span <laughs> wasn't well, attention spans what he's going after yeah well it was like he was like he's like and the visuals you see are no longer than like. 3.5 seconds per visual. He had a, a line around that section that really struck to me where he said, like, these are the best photographed uh, pieces in the world. I, I can't remember exactly what pieces are just pieces of film or what, but this is the highest level of photography that you're going to see in life. That was like, yeah. That, yeah. From a good end standpoint. He also mentions at one point that, like, I don't know where he, I mean, I didn't read the footnotes, but he says something like, we're going to see like 100,000 commercials in our lifetime. Oh, that's probably like oh one million one million television commercials in 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 your lifetime, the average American. Wow. But I mean, like that's an eighty standpoint. Like, how does your work uh, apply to that? Like, I was gonna say, I feel like if you look at the time spent with different media, like that's definitely a figure and a number we have. And then what advertisers look at is time spent in front of a television on your phone. I. Uh, streaming like it's all broken out and a lot of times there's also and i forget the word because of course right now but the idea that you're doing multiple things at the same time like you could be in front of your laptop watching tv with your phone which really would have annoyed mr postman (laughs) yeah which is also what gets to the internet critique of distraction i was gonna say i think he'd be really upset about it um (laughs) Well, we, we talked about this a little on our, uh, our I did, we did an episode on Yuval Noah Harari and about the, um, I think we talked a little bit about like the accuracy of data, but like data is just going to, the reason it's, it's, it's surpassed oil is just because it's accuracy as a uh, thing that really changes, that moves the, the needle on what affects people is going to exponentially go up as mm-hmm. opposed to what advertising says right now. And it's going to change advertising or just what, how we sell things to people significantly. How we sell them, where we sell them. How accurately we sell to them. Do we sell them what they really need versus what they really want? You know, yeah, like, I mean, do, can we make their lives better versus do we need to, the branding standpoint of like, do you want to make someone like feel like they need this to be cool or their life lacks if they don't have it? Whoa. Yeah. I want to make people feel real bad about themselves. <laughs> This is why I wanted you on, Tara. I just wanted you to call bullshit on this. I just want you to have a bummer, man. Different products for different times. Now I'm going to go rethink my life and uh, go work in a library. I don't know. I was trying to think of something. Work in Neil Postman's, uh, I don't know what college you worked at, but work in academia. NYU. When I was doing some light research on this book, one of his lectures came up. I don't know. Like I listened to his introduction. I didn't listen to the whole lecture, but I listened to the introduction. I seem to get the feeling that this was the most significant book of his legacy. I also get that vibe. Okay. But I do, I what I do like about it, even though I just complained about it a ton, the idea that there's an academic study of what technology and media and its impact on us as humans is taking and that you can major in this until in uh, college. So that's fun. 
<laughs> college TV majors are the only ones that are going to get a benefit out of this, apparently. Yeah, like I, like from that perspective, I enjoyed it. As someone who took a long time to pay off their student loans, <laughs> glad, uh, glad, glad that it came in handy. For the TV on the radio aspect, I want to point out that for like, especially like the last half hour, you've just been like pointing the the book at your video camera. Oh, like this like, is a full pro- full prop for me is waving this book in your face yeah you were just waving it's like this book this book this book <laughs> like like an advertiser <laughs> she i'm advertising this i read <laughs> as my friend i want to thank you for reading this book for doing my homework assignment that i assigned to you um I, I mean, I, it, a lot of the times on this show, I'll pick shit that like is just excuse because I've been meaning to read it and I want to engage on it to talk about it afterwards. And it'll turn out that maybe I don't feel that strongly about it. I think this book, I really think that the uh, um, Orwell versus Huxley argument, the 1984 versus Brave New World stuff really stands the test of time and it's really telling. Um, it has a lot to tell, say to us and like, you know, the the point we came on towards the end, entertainment versus substance is something I think we're going to have to still like grapple with for a long time. So I think that's what, I think that's what the, for me, I got out of the book. Entertainment versus substance. I mean, are, are they even at odds? Both? Are they, yeah. Are they even at odds? I, well, I feel like he's saying they are, or they, the substance gets, you know, muddied and just, and uh, diluted by entertainment, by, you know, by trying to make it entertaining. And I don't think that's true. Mm. Okay. I'll make a strong statement. I, I think that's a great insight, Tara. Thank you. Thank you for that validation. Tara Fernandez. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. You're welcome. Yeah, anytime you want to read a book, um, you know, I know how to read. I'm happy to come on. By the way, Tara, I've been thinking about doing an episode on the decline of the Third Reich. <laughs> Perfect. It's only like, what, 1,300 pages? I, I can, was going to say. We could find a way of making it about movies. You know, I, I would be up for that challenge. I, I'm down. It would probably take me a year to read it. But you know what's going to end up happening, Tara, is uh, a year from now, you're going to be doing a podcast with my dad. <laughs> Perfect. I, I'd like to do a podcast with your whole family. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is played into my. Uh, this is played we're we're also going to do you're going to do an episode with my stepdad on um, season on the brink about the uh, 1985 Indiana Hoosiers basketball with Bobby Knight. Oh, Perfect. Listen, I'm happy oh. to talk about whatever, whenever, things I know about, things I don't know about. Um, yeah, I'm around. Welcome to the world of podcasting, Tara. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about stuff. So.